Thanks for tuning in to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our mission is to be with Jesus and become like Him for the sake of the world. We hope the message today helps you to do just that. Let's dive in. Uh, have you all noticed a recent surge uh, in like those like morning routine gurus? You know, especially like in January, you know what I'm talking about? Those morning routine gurus, they're usually like gym bros or like hyper entrepreneurs or whatever. If you're unfamiliar, here's essentially what all of them are saying online right now. Something like this. Uh, I awaken at whatever time my enemies go to sleep, more or less. Every morning I wake up my alarm clock. I listen to two books on triple speed in reverse. I don't do push-ups, I push the earth down. Then I do 47 miles on the elliptical while giving a bodybuilder a piggyback ride, followed by 20 minutes of mind palace, envisioning my best life now. I save 12 kittens every morning before sunrise. I don't hit the weights, the weights hit me because I'm reversing the gravitational pull of the earth. Every night I wake before I go to bed. I teach all of this in my $400,000 masterclass. DM me the word freedom and we'll jump on a discovery call. Anyone? Anyone know what I'm talking about? I. Listen, I'm poking fun because I, I like morning routine. I am kind of a morning routine guy, uh, but it's getting out of control. It's, it's honestly getting, everyone seems to be going like a million miles a minute right now. In fact, have you ever noticed that there's a new standard answer to the question, how are you? I feel like 20 years ago, the standard answer to that was fine or good. What do you think the most common answer is now to the question, how are you? Busy, right? Oh, so busy. How are you? Oh, I'm busy. Oh, and if you're, if you're really busy, what do you say? Oh, I'm crazy busy. Because busy doesn't like denote enough of just how busy I actually am. But here's the weird thing, at least for me, um, being busy often secretly makes me feel important. Does anyone else resonate with that? Anyone else struggle a bit? It's like there's like a, a like, it's like status attached to being busy. Think about it this way. How do you feel when someone asks what you're doing this weekend and the answer is nothing? Again, th- those of you who are introverts, you're like, euphoric, it's the best. <laughs> Don't talk to me. But a lot of us, though, when we look at our calendar and it's, it's empty, even just for a day, we feel like, oh boy, I really must be missing something. For some of us, there's a sense of guilt or we'll like lie and say that we do have something even if we don't have something. There was an article in the Atlantic titled, Ugh, I'm so busy, a status symbol for our time. Here's what it says. In a curious reversal, aspirational objects are not luxury goods like a nice watch or a new car, but instead bragging about how busy you are. Wanting to to seem busy is how one gains status in a culture that values productivity and busyness above all else. In fact, uh, many of us are suffering from what scientists call hurry sickness. Here's a definition from psychology today. Hurry sickness is a behavior pattern characterized by continual rushing and anxiousness, an overwhelming and continued sense of urgency. Anyone self-diagnosing right now? If you don't think you struggle with hurry, by the way, try coming to a full, complete stop the next time you come to a stop sign. It will do something to your soul. So you'll feel like, well, I can't come to a complete stop. I got Netflix to watch, I guess. Are you tired has become a rhetorical question in the modern era. Low-grade exhaustion is the new norm. The average sleep globally used to be 11 hours. Now, today, it's six. And some of you think that's high, right? It's like we're busier than we ever have been. And it's almost like at least in some strange sense, we feel that the busier that I am, the more that I matter. But at the same time, doesn't busyness kind of leave us a little disordered? When you take stock of your day or your week or your month, 
doesn't it do something a little bit to our heart and to our soul? Something is disordered when we are in this constant state of going. So how do we actually fix that? Well, I'll talk about that today. We're in week four of our series called Jesus and the Table. And the reason we're calling it that is because Christianity did not take shape behind pulpits or on altars or in books even. As good as all those things are, I love preaching the word of God. This, this is the, one of the greatest joys of my life, but it took shape around tables with people sharing meals and stories and pain and the good news of the gospel. I would argue that one of the most controversial parts of the ministry of Jesus is who he ate with and how he did it. So we're spending a few months kind of exploring Jesus's table manners, the people that he ate with and the stories that he told. Now today what I want to talk about is this idea that what we long for what, what I would argue all of us are designed for is a life of presence. A life of presence is understanding that God made us human beings, not human doings. It's about ordering our lives according to the design of our creator. Is it, is it worth stating that many of us, that our culture is wildly out of step with the rhythm that we were created for? Even if you're not a Jesus person, you could look at the world at large and think, yes, yeah, something seems slightly, if not majorly, out of whack. Our souls are meant to live and thrive in a very simple, ordered way. There's a logical order to things. And I believe that if we follow the order that we were all intrinsically designed for, life works a lot better. I think about it like this shirt. Okay, so this shirt has six buttons. Some of you are going to text me and say there's buttons on the shirt, on the pockets here. Right. But um, most weekdays... Uh, I wake up a little bit earlier than my wife, and so to not disturb her, I usually get dressed in the dark, and this is TMI, I'm sure, but there have been certain days where I will grab a button up, which is not often, and in preparing to uh, get ready for the day in the dark, I end up doing one of these moves. Anyone ever done this? Right? And then this one, maybe this one goes here. Anyone ever been three meetings into your day? And you're in the mirror <laughs> at the bathroom at your work, and you're like, do I not have any friends here? Like, why has nobody, like, you're a little bit out of order with the way the shirt was designed to work. And I think that many of us, when we look at our lives, it maybe feels a little bit like that. Like, it's not on fire, but something feels out of whack. Something feels a little disordered. Here's the problem. A lot of us are living our lives like this. We sense it. But we can't quite figure it out. Life feels off because there's a way that our souls are meant to be ordered. There's a logical, I would argue, God-designed order to our lives. And if we follow that as designed, it works a lot better. So today in Luke chapter 10, a little bit of context. Of all the people that Jesus interacted with during his three-year ministry, Scripture records only one person that he redirected in this area of presence of ordering our lives in the right way. A good friend of his, a woman named Martha. Now, we actually uh, unpacked this story back in December a little bit. So if you were here in December, you're like, wait a minute, is he just recycling a month later? I'm not, I promise. We're going to take a little bit of a different angle perspective, particularly in light of Jesus and the table. So stick with me. Now, Jesus, at this point in his ministry, had hundreds of followers, but he chose only a handful to be in his inner circle. Martha, her siblings, Mary and Lazarus, were in that circle. They were faithful friends of Jesus and lived in a suburb of Jerusalem called Bethany, which still exists today. You can go see it. Jesus stayed with them from time to time and deeply valued their friendship. That's important context for what we're going to read because if you don't understand the friendship dynamic here, uh, you read it a little different. So the demands of Jesus at this point were growing. And the more he taught, the more he healed 
the more people wanted more of him. We read this just last week, right? The crowds not only gathered, but they followed him. He tried to escape via a boat, and they're like, that's all right, we'll just walk around the lake. We'll find you, Jesus. The, gr- the crowds are growing. His days were increasingly packed. I would argue he was crazy busy. He had a lot going on. I imagine every waking moment, if you knew that somebody was in your town that raised people from the dead, you'd probably be hitting that guy up, right? Lots of demands on his time. Maybe you can relate. So occasionally, Jesus will call a time out and retreat to Bethany where he could wind down for a day or two and refuel in the company of friends. We all know that that's important, right? There's like refueling, and then there's like refueling in front of people that just get you. You all know what I mean? Where you can like let your hair down, and they have all the context, and they know your weird humor, and you're just... This is some of what Jesus is seeking out here. Here's how Luke describes one visit in Luke chapter 10. It says, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, uh, theologians, by the way, call this part of scripture the travel narrative. As we mentioned last week, um, this second half of Luke now, he's heading towards Jerusalem. He's heading towards the cross. Uh, He came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Real quickly, This is deeply significant, by the way. And many of you have heard this story a million times and maybe you didn't know this. According to this culture, um, Mary is not where the women are supposed to be. Like in the first century, there were very, very clear lines of delineation, particularly in households. There were divided regions that men could or couldn't be and women could or couldn't be. In the first century, there was very strict roles and responsibilities for men and women. In fact, in the first century, um, this would have been sometimes even outlined visibly in a home. Women were not permitted to sit at the feet of rabbis. Men and women did not intermingle. Mary is not where she's supposed to be. Hold on to that for a second. Because I want us to kind of get the punk rock nature of what she's doing here. She's going against the grain. Like sitting at the feet of Jesus is like such a common nomenclature for us now. It's like a cute thing that we, you know, we make watercolor paintings and we put in our living room. But she, this is sort of like, in a lot of ways, deeply inappropriate. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus. She's welcomed at the feet of Jesus. This is the language of discipleship, by the way. Jesus, as he often does, dignifies and elevates women in a deeply profound way. Here's how the story goes on. Verse 40, but Martha was distracted. The word distracted means pulled away by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Again, Martha is doing the, not just the appropriate thing, she's doing the honorable thing. She's doing arguably like the noble thing in this context. And what I love about this dichotomy here is she calls him Lord, (laughs) And then offers a reprimand. Some of us, perhaps, you've had that dynamic with Jesus to you. Yeah, Lord, Lord, Lord. Also, you really should be doing this, right? She calls him Lord, but then also offers this correction, this reprimand. So for Martha, doing the thing, the noble thing, the right thing, the expected thing, has distracted her from the most important thing. And the passage goes on. Jesus says, Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken from her. So according to everything everyone knew, not just these two, this wasn't just like a sibling dynamic, according to every expectation of this culture, Martha is doing the honorable thing and Mary is not. I want you to sit with the weight of that for a second. Martha's doing the thing you're supposed to be doing who knows what Mary's doing? 
How are you feeling, even if you're just a bystander in the situation? And Jesus corrects not Mary, but Martha, which means for us there's a frightening potential for serving to be a distraction from Jesus. Doing things for God without doing them with him. And I'll, and I'll, I'll say this every time we teach this passage. Truth is that I am way more Martha than Mary. I like to be busy. I like to work hard. I like to hustle. I like to, I, I, that's just how I'm, I'm wired. I struggle with this story a lot. Now you can see the dynamics of the situation shaping up from a mile away, right? So Mary and Martha maybe haven't had time to prepare for Jesus' drop-in visit. Mary decides to kind of just go with the flow and like sits at the feet of Jesus. Perhaps she's saying something to Jesus like, man, I'm so glad you're here. How's it going on the road? What have you seen? What have you experienced? Meanwhile, Martha has busied herself in the kitchen getting the meal going. And I imagine she's getting like more and more frantic to play the role of accommodating hostess, right? She wants to make sure that Jesus and his disciples have the appetizers and the drinks and the meal and all that. And it begins to grate on her that Mary is in the other room just, what, hanging out? Any, where are my Marthas, by the way? Let me just see the other, this is, at this point of the story, your blood pressure is beginning to, okay. After a while, Martha just kind of snaps. And I don't, this is, again, this is conjecture. I don't know up until this point, she's maybe dropping subtle hints. Maybe she like, uh, you see that move they used to do in sitcoms where she like intentionally drops a bunch of pans in the other room, like, it'd be nice if someone would help me. I don't know if any of that's going on. Maybe she like shot her like a glance from the other room. Can you, can you picture like Martha's just sort of like, Can you just sort of see that in the scene? Like at her sister, can you help me? We don't know whether Mary has missed or chosen to ignore her sister's hints, but at a certain, part, uh, a certain point, Martha bursts into the room and just like interrupts the conversation. And notice she doesn't address Mary, <laughs> which again, that could be a whole other sermon. Who does she address? Jesus. Who does she have an issue with? Mary. This one's for free. You should talk to the person you have an issue with. If you're here today, you have an issue with someone, don't tell everyone and their mom. Tell them. Deal with it. Okay, anyway. Uh, notice uh, this, by the way, is the same thing. When she says, Lord, don't you care, this is the same thing the disciples asked Jesus in Mark 4 when he's uh, napping in the boat while they're in the midst of a storm. <laughs> and Mary, in, in a lot of ways, is uh, Martha is sort of in the midst of a storm of her own making at this point, right? But she says what the disciples say elsewhere to Jesus, don't you care? Can you not see what's going on here? Do you not plan to help? Now, the irony here, to me, is really thick. Sit with that phrase for a second. Don't you care? Lord, do you not care? She asks the God of the universe, the one who left the awesomeness of heaven and put on human flesh, don't you care? The one who has been out on the road teaching and healing and serving others until he's exhausted, don't, don't you care? the one who will soon bleed and die for the redemption of the world. Lord, don't you care? And yet, what Jesus doesn't say, I think, is deeply profound. He doesn't say, how dare you speak to the Son of God that way? She offers Jesus a reprimand. And what he doesn't say is, how dare you? Do you know who I am? According to the text, he simply says her name, Twice, Martha, Martha. Now, the repetition of a person's name in Semitic language was actually a term of endearment. I don't think Jesus is scolding her. I think he's pleading with her. I think he's saying, Martha, you're missing it. 
You're doing the thing that's expected of you, and that's good, and we'll talk more about that in a second, but you're missing it. Martha, Martha is an expression of compassion and kindness to Martha. With genuine kindness, he makes this observation. You are worried and upset about many things. Now, the word worried means pulled apart, and the word upset means dragged away. And personally, I've been in both those places. Maybe you can relate. I know a lot of Christ followers today who are in one or both of those places. Pulled apart, right? Not fully present. You ever had coffee with someone like that? They're technically on the other side of the coffee table, but you know they're not actually there. Anyone? Don't point if they're in the room, but (laughs) you know what I mean? Pulled apart, distracted, only half there. Or maybe dragged away by like another alert, another beep, another notification, another ding. Anyone? find themselves in that place today, you are pulled apart, dragged away. I've been there more than I care to admit. Maybe, maybe you're here and you're like legitimately amazed by Jesus. And maybe you've surrendered to him. Maybe you're legitimately amazed and thankful that he has saved you. And yet we are distracted, pulled apart, dragged away. This is, this is one of the things that as a pastor that keeps me up at night. That we would have a church full of people who I think have legitimately surrendered to Jesus but are so deeply distracted by everything else. It's possible to have like a saved soul and a wasted life. That we could, we could legitimately trust and surrender and then live out our days paying attention to a lot lesser things. Martha's affliction is not that she has a busy body. It's that she has a busy heart. She has a busy soul. And more than her activity, Jesus wanted her. It's like, you're doing the good thing. Way to go. You're missing it. Now, Jesus can tell that she's overwhelmed, right? She's, do, she's doing too much. She relates very much to that kind of hurry sickness that we talked about. Jesus invites her to take a couple of deep breaths. And notice that he doesn't say you're working too hard. This is really important. Hard work is part of the deal, y'all. If you want to Google search the amount of times hard work shows up in the Bible, there's a, there's a lot. Working hard is part of what it means to be a Christ follower. In fact, the Greek word for Martha's serving is diakonio, which is used positively in every other place in the Bible. When Jesus described himself as someone who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life for a ransom for many in Matthew 10, he uses that word. When Paul lays out the qualifications for deacons, a role of help and service in the church, that's the word he uses in 1 Timothy 3. So this word, he's not rebuking the work. He's rebuking the distraction. The order. You're out of order, Martha. Listen to how Charles Spurgeon put it. He says, the way to get the revival is to begin at the master's feet. You must go there with Mary and afterwards you may work with Martha. I long to see a revival in our world. I don't know about you. It does not come from us just doing a bunch more good things. I'm not knocking good things. We should be. I'm like, elsewhere in Scripture, let, let others see your good works so that they can praise your Father in heaven. But we begin first at the feet of Jesus with Mary before we join Martha in the work. Put it another way, Jesus always says, come to me before he says, go for me. Mission is fueled by presence by sitting at the feet of our rabbi Jesus. Martha here is welcoming her guests. She's practicing the gospel virtue of hospitality. This, by the way, is a requirement even for elders. I don't think we talk about that nearly enough. 
When we look for elders and qualifications of an elder, hospitality is one of them. It's a deeply important work. But what Jesus is saying is so many things are occupying your mind right now. They're churning you up inside and it is stealing you from me. So let me just ask bluntly, what is occupying your mind right now? What thing, maybe even good thing, is like churning you up inside? I can picture Jesus taking advantage of a teachable moment, not just for Martha, but for everyone in the room saying something like this. Martha, can I clarify something for you? When I stop by, it's not for the food. <laughs> if I wanted a five-star dinner, I could arrange for one. After all, I just fed 5,000 people a couple weeks ago with a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread. When I stop by to visit, it's for friendship. It's for connection, to be with you and for you to be with me. In Luke's text, Jesus tells Martha something I too often need reminding of. Verse 42, few things are needed, indeed only one. Martha was missing what mattered most. And, and way too many of us are in danger of making that same mistake. Jesus says, Mary has chosen the good part and I'm not going to take it from her. I will not send her into the kitchen at the expense of being with me. And I've said this before, but I'll say it again. You were not created for a life you don't have time for. So many of us have made so many, can I just be really lovingly blunt? We've made so many excuses for our lack of time in the word or prayer or community or, or vulnerability or gospel community or even Sunday morning. Like we, it's so, and listen, I've been there, by the way. I, I'm not saying anything I haven't said to myself. We're like, oh man, I just, there's, right now this season is really crazy. At what point does a season just become a life? You know what I mean? Eventually, it's no longer a season. That's just how we are living our life. You were not created for a life that you don't have time for. And if Jesus is saying to Martha, man, you're doing good things, but you're missing the best thing. He acknowledges that's good work. But by affirming Mary's choice, Jesus invites Martha to set down her spoon and follow her sister's example, which means there's a right and wrong way for us to use the table. It means that if we're not careful, and we're doing this kind of in the middle of our series, we will use the table as one more distraction, one more ministry thing that we should be doing, or one more thing that my pastor said, I gotta try really hard. If we're not careful, we can be distracted by good things and miss the best thing. Tim Chester puts it this way. He says, somewhere along the line, the commercialization of meals has cost us something precious. Hospitality has become performance art, and we've lost the creation of intimacy around the meal. Entertaining is not the same thing as hospitality. Have you ever had like a realtor walk you through a house and they're like, and this area would be great for entertaining, right? In my mind, I always just think like juggling on a unicycle for some reason, which I'm very good at. But uh, isn't it interesting how, how natural it is for us to talk about entertaining guests? It's like so a part of our cultural vernacular. That's not what hospitality is. It's not about putting on a show. It's not about impressing them. It's not about us feeling better about ourselves once they're gone. It's ultimately about helping introduce them to Jesus, to create safe space for dialogue, for conversation, for tears and laughter. That's what hospitality is about. Do your heart and mind yearn for an antidote to all the worry and the distraction in your life? The antidote is not going to be in getting it all done all the time. The antidote is leaving that stuff sometimes undone to sit for an unrushed conversation with Jesus. But it's easy to miss, though, isn't it? We get so wrapped up in doing good things, especially if a bunch of other people around us are doing good things, 
that we could just jump from good thing to good thing to good thing. We need a different way. I, I, uh, I read a book a couple months ago called Unreasonable Hospitality by Will Guadera. Not a Christian book, but he tells this incredible story, a little bit of context. So he owned and operated a restaurant in New York called 11 Madison Park. Super fancy pants, by the way. He didn't say that. Those are my, those are my words. Uh, when he sold it in 2020, it had been named the number one restaurant in the world. And he says that we had all the elements. We had delicious food. Uh, the service was near perfect. The dining room was immaculate. And for these reasons, they were consistently on the list of 50 best restaurants in the world. But it was a hot dog that earned them the number one spot. Here's what happened. Early in 2010, during a busier than normal lunch service, uh, Will was clearing uh, one of the tables and he overheard a group of foodies talking uh, who were visiting from out of state. And they're like, oh man, we've been to all the best restaurants. And I would list them if I knew what they were. But they, all these really great restaurants, we've been to everyone. The one regret we have is that we didn't have a chance to try a New York City hot dog. They had all their bags with them and they were going to the airport right from there. So Will, hearing this, takes his like bus thing uh, and then uh, drops it off and then sprints out the door down the block to the nearest hot dog cart. He purchases a hot dog for, I don't know, $2, comes running back to the restaurant, runs right past the guests into the kitchen and says to the chef, I need you to prepare this. And the chef, of course, like protests. He's like, I'm not preparing a hot dog. And finally he convinces him. And so he, I don't know how you do this, but he chops up. This is the second week in a row I've had a hot dog illustration, which is concerning. <laughs> I just had that realization. Now I'm worried. <laughs> so he like chops it at an angle wherever and does like the, you know, the smear with the, with the mustard and the ketchup or something. I don't, I don't know. And they presents it to these four foodies. And he writes in the book that they lost their minds. He said it was the biggest reaction that he had ever seen in a restaurant. He told them later it was the highlight not only of their meal, but of the entire trip. And he writes that before that he focused only on excellence, but there was something that he hadn't noticed. He said, in restaurants, our reason for being is to make people feel seen, welcome, to give them a sense of belonging. In restaurants, the food, the service, the design are simply ingredients in the recipe of human connection. That is hospitality. And then he wrote this, service is black and white, hospitality is color. Service is black and white, hospitality is color. And I thought, gosh, there's so much truth in our lives. We can do a bunch of good things technically. Like I, I checked the box of my good deed for the day or the week or the month. Hospitality is something different. It's a place of welcome and belonging. And he talks about the importance of, of three things. One, being present. He says, often we're moving so fast that we don't actually even hear what other people need. He says, if I wasn't present, I wouldn't have overheard this conversation about the hot dogs. Two, he says, don't take yourself too seriously. He says a hot dog in a, like a Michelin star restaurant is absurd, but it made their day. And then third, he said, one size fits one. Hospitality is about making people feel seen. He said, I could have comped the meal or given them a bucket of caviar, but it would not have compared to a $2 hot dog. This requires presence, it requires slowing down, it requires listening to Jesus and the people that he puts in our path. And yet so often, like Martha, we can get so bogged down by the details of service that we miss hospitality. And again, I'm saying this as someone who loves to move all the time, but I desperately need to listen to Jesus when he shows up in my life and says, Ian, Ian, you are trying to do so many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Because if I don't listen to him and those around me, my life looks a little bit like a 
a shirt that's buttoned out of order. And maybe somebody else will be able to spot it before I can, but it's not the way that we were designed. I end up with a distracted, disordered soul. So let me just briefly remind you of what's at stake here. When I, when I live disordered like this, pursuing good things at the expense of the best thing, it's bad for my marriage. Who wants to be married to someone who dresses like this, by the way? <laughs> my life is like that. There's no time or space for real intimacy and connection. It's not good for my family. I can't be a good dad. If you're a parent, by the way, what your parents need most from you is you. Full stop. Your presence. Not you and you doom scrolling. Not you and you answering one more email. For a lot of us, when we're present, we're not actually present. When I live this kind of life, I'm not the kind of friend that I need to be. I can easily begin to treat people like they're just another box in my checklist. No one wants to be treated like that. It makes me a less effective leader. As a leader in church or in work, in the community or at home, you reproduce who you are. There is a lot at stake here. What if we committed our lives to simply order our lives in the way that God has designed, putting the first things first? So how do we actually do that? Here's how that could look. Two quick challenges as we close. First, first thing each day, be with God. First thing each day, be with God. If you're like me, when you wake up in the morning, your brain's already going a million miles a minute, right? And uh, I'm going to show my cards a little bit. I'm one of those guys that, like, plans his day the night before. I'm one of those weirdos. Or not weirdo. Yeah, that's totally smart and normal. Um, so when I wake up in the morning, like, I'm already ready to go. Like, it's not like, oh, I wonder what today will bring. Like, I've already decided what today will bring. Often things, the last, the last thing that intuitively comes to mind for me is to slow down and spend time with God, but that's exactly what we need to do. Most of us wake up like Martha's, but we need to react like Mary's. Hudson Taylor says, don't have your concert first and then tune your instrument. Begin every day aligning your heart and your soul in prayer and scripture, and then say, God, what do you want to do in and through me today? If you want to find a, or live a satisfied, well-ordered soul, you need to simplify, and we do that Every day, you might need to find a place. Sometimes just designating a place can be really helpful. Sometimes it's learning that prayer is an invitation. It's just a conversation with God. I'd encourage you to be in the Word of God. A really great resource that we've created is the Abide Plan, bridge.tv slash abide. We have physical copies in the Resource Center, or you can download there or on the YouVersion app. I Jump in, even if you've never even heard us talk about this. It's not too late to begin a discipline of starting the day with God. Secondly, first day of each week, be with God's people. On the first day of each week, show up to be with God's people. Are we broken? Yes. Are we flawed? 100%. But we've seen this for centuries. In the same way, we need to start our day being with God. We need to start our week being with God and his people. This has been an ancient practice for God's people. In the Old Testament, it was on Saturday, a Sabbath. And in the New Testament, it was moved to Sunday to celebrate the resurrection. If we're going to be serious about bringing the gospel to every table, it starts here. Beginning every day with God and every week with God's people. If we really want to pray these words at this table as it is in heaven, we need to first sit at the feet of Jesus. If we're going to be strategic about the 21 meals that most of us eat every single week and to listen to the voice of the Father, it requires first us saying it begins at the feet of Jesus. It will require more than axioms or acronyms or illustrations. It will require a reordering of our souls. 
And if you started off the year on the wrong foot, and the buttons are already like out of whack, it's not too late to start over. You might have to go back and unbutton something that might look like forgiveness, that might look like reconciliation. You do not have to keep buttoning. Maybe it wasn't just this year, maybe it's been a decade, maybe it's surrendering for the first time or the hundredth time, recognizing, God, I don't think my way is working. You desperately need a Mary spirit in a Martha world. So many of us are so driven by achievement or people-pleasing. What I think we desperately need, first and foremost, is to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. It's only then, when we hear the voice of the Father, to hear that we are enough. Only then can we drop the facade and actually sit at the feet of Jesus. The big thing to change is to reorder our lives and to hear the voice of the one who loves us. Not of shame or guilt, but to hear Martha, Martha, emphatically, hey, bud, you're gonna, you're gonna miss it, man. Hey, I see your good work. Oh, gosh, I see all the effort. Oh, I see your intent. You're missing me. Don't miss the presence of God. Don't miss the whisper of the good shepherd. The most important activity, I would argue, for any apprentice of Jesus is listening to and learning from Jesus. We cannot call ourselves apprentices of Jesus if we're doing a bunch of good things, but we're not doing the most important thing. We can't call ourselves apprentices of Jesus if we aren't sitting at his feet, listening to him, learning from him in his word. That's the number one thing. I'm gonna end with a, a quote from someone on our teaching team. And uh, she, by the way, hates that I'm including her name in the quote, but she said it. Many of you know that weeks before any sermon is preached, we have a teaching team that is sort of weighing in and making the sermon so much better and more robust. And Rachel, Rachel said this, and I just thought it was so good. She said, the best set table, the best food, the best guest list, none of that makes a table that changes the world. The table that changes the world is the one hosted by someone who has sat at the feet of Jesus. Only then can we really begin to pray, Lord, at this table as it is in heaven, every table that we sit at, what if we brought good news? But we can only do that if we're first sitting at his feet, receiving what, he is, what it is that he has for us. Thanks for listening to the Bridge Church's podcast today. If you want to be the first to know each time a new message is released, hit the subscribe button so you can stay up to date. We're so grateful we can release content that encourages our local body and followers of Jesus all around the world. If you'd like to partner with us and help fuel the mission of the Bridge Church, there's a link to give below. If you're curious about visiting or want to get involved, take a minute to learn more by visiting bridge.tv. All right, fam, thanks for listening. May we be with Jesus and become like him for the sake of the world.